0: I've been doing open source for long enough to, to recognize some of the pitfalls of doing open source in the enterprise, which is making it scale down, ah. making it making it context free, not making not encoding Conway's law into the software you're releasing.
1: Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Catherine Druckman, an open source evangelist at Intel bringing you leading-edge, free-ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open-source community. Let's get into it. This past KubeCon, I got to talk with Kapil Sengavehlu, co-founder and CEO of Stacklet.io, and creator and lead maintainer of Cloud Custodian. We talked all about Cloud Custodian, its thriving community, and the secrets to its success. Join us. Hey, Kapil, thank you for carving out a little time for me here at KubeCon. I know I know you're very busy. Everybody is extremely busy. This is a bit of an overwhelming event, I think. We pack our schedules pretty tightly, so I appreciate it.
0: Well, happy to be here. And it has been a busy, busy day.
1: Yeah, I, I believe you. Um, so, so for the people who don't know who you are yet, I want you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us kind of how you're involved in the open source community.
0: Well, I uh, self-identify as a developer. I've been doing open source since the late 90s, back when it was that group of hippies. Um, and I've <laughs> watched it. it go from that to the de facto way that everyone builds software. Uh, back then, I was uh, in college, and I so I installed Linux, and all of a sudden... Was it Slackware? Uh, it was actually... Suse, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and then I switched out to Red Hat, and then I finally got to Debian and Ubuntu. But um, as so, did we all, right? Yes. Um, but for me, it was it was like eye opening and game changing. because I would probably be a history professor right now because um, I double majored. Really? And I uh, like going from like Windows and having to buy a compiler to having all the tools free and being able to find the source and look at that and learn from it and fix things if if they needed to be fixed um, was just eye-opening for me. And then joining onto communities and engaging with the people that wrote the software and other people that were using it. And it just seemed like a better way of building things, using the wisdom of the crowds and all of the use cases that a community can bring that a single organization rarely can Um, really either has the ability to know what those ideas are or to implement those ideas due to capacity.
1: Well, fantastic. So what do you you do? What are you working on these days?
0: So for the last, uh, since roughly about 2016, I have been a primary maintainer on an open source project that I created called Cloud Custodian. I did that when I was at Capital One when they were making their making their move into the cloud at haste. Um, you know, they were going to burn the ships, so uh, they wanted to get everything out there. And the first, when I got there, I went to the trenches and moved some of the first apps into production on the cloud. And I noticed that there was a lot of things that we were doing that were causing us some velocity and imped- impediments mismatches. and. It had to do with, you know, at a bank, a regulated institution, you there's lots of things you have to do for compliance reasons. And we were doing them with, you know, process and one-off scripts. And I realized at the pace of innovation in cloud, we had to automate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember going into like the security team's office and they had this big wall of red and I'm like, what's that? And they're like, these are all the things that are wrong. And I'm like, why don't you tell the developers over there about it? <laughs> And they're like, well, we have to go up the org chart and down the org chart. And like, I'm like, well, what if we just fixed it for them in real time and told them about it? And so that was the genesis of Cloud Custodian. And it operates as a, yeah, as a stateless CLI that processes YAML, uh, YAML DSL for policies. The policies themselves, they let you find uh, resources that are interesting in some way. Um, you basically get to do arbitrary filtering to find that interesting set of things and then take a set of actions on them. And to this day, it's still sort of world leading in terms of being able to fix problems versus um, report them only. And so that language of filters and actions becomes a vocabulary for creating your own policies. We also were early adopters of serverless. so typically when you execute a policy, you're basically just going to query at the cloud control plane, find all those interesting things, take those actions. Um, but we also have the ability to, um, say, Hey, the next time this API is run, I want to introspect it to understand if what's the effect of that API is going to be compliant to policy. And then, um, when you run that policy on the command line, we actually provision a serverless function, hook it up to its event sources, and evaluate all that in in real time. So p99 of a few seconds, um, sometimes milliseconds, sometimes a minute, depending on which provider you're on and what the native capability of that provider is. Um, and so we released it out into the world in April 2016 and sort of took off. Like there was, it was you know, from a bank's perspective, that's mostly undifferentiated lifting. And so being able to, and taking advantage of the power of community to be able to flush out all the capabilities and all the resources, because the clouds are constantly innovating, um, was huge to be able to to help satisfy people's needs. And I'd been doing open source for long enough to, to recognize some of the pitfalls of doing open source in the enterprise, which is making it scale down, ah. making it making it context free, not making not encoding Conway's law into the software you're releasing. And so, Custodian is a tool is as a stateless CLI scales down to mom and pop shops as well as to some of the largest enterprises in the world. Um, and we were picked up a bunch of early adopters, uh, AOL. Uh, Ticketmaster, um, a few others, and you know we got some early contributions. And in 2017, Microsoft came to us and said, "Hey, we'd like to add support for Azure to this tool." And so they had a team of developers work on it for wow, almost two years and adding in various Azure support GCP followed in 2018. Um, and actually, as of recently this year, we had Oracle come and add support for OCI to it. Um, as well as Tencent Cloud. So continuing to add cloud providers. Um, But we've also, you know, while we can do all that runtime management and we get used for lots of different purposes, you know, it's sort of a Swiss Army knife for helping organizations be well-managed in the cloud. And that could be applying security policies, that could be doing operations, making sure you have centralized backups and, and centralized logging across your assets, or can be FinOps. And we've done a lot of FinOps, uh, Help orgs do a lot of FinOps use cases. Uh, I think we have like 3,000 people in the FinOps Foundation Slack in the studio room. Um, and so, FinOps use cases are, let's do off hours, let's turn off things when we're not using them at night in development environments. Let's uh, garbage collect all the underutilized things. Um, let's uh, you know, apply lifecycle policies to our container registries or our optic storage. So, wide variety of use cases um, and you know you can literally construct millions of policies and the other part of being doing remediation in the real world is dealing with exception management and dealing with various scenarios around hey this isn't a green field but we, we, but we now have a new best practice that we want to implement and let's put together a Event based serverless policy to stop the bleeding on the net new, and then let's give people two weeks' grace uh, on cleaning up the old stuff, and then another week po- after we shut it down before we delete it and creating these sort of workflows that map to the real world needs of an organization. Um, and that's just all things that we excel at. What we've done, uh, and we've since added Kubernetes support, uh, validating and mutating emission controllers, um, and we've also uh, added the ability to shift left. So now we can not just evaluate what's in the actual environment, but we can apply those same policies to what's in your in on your, your infrastructure as code assets on your developer workstation in CI, um, and with native integration uh, into the you know the pull the code hosting repository pull request mechanisms to annotate those PRs directly for code reviewers to be able to understand where a resource or that pull request is not compliant. So. Lots of new things, you know. All problems are easier to fix, um, you know, closer to the source, mm-hmm. so to speak. But at the same time, you're always going to have things that are happening on the right that you need to deal with on the right. Um, uh, thin ops use cases around like, hey, you've got a database that's underutilized. You have to observe it in practice to be able to determine that. Um, and of course, there's always people doing click ops, not always, but in many places. Um, <laughs> So that is roughly custodian. We have, like uh, I think, over 400 contributors. We're a CNCF wow. incubating project. Um, it's really grown. We have thousands of production users um, and organizations uh, that are using us in mission-critical ways as, uh, for for being well-maintained and that. that's
1: That's, um, wow, that's fun. You answered a lot of my questions before I even got to them, so kudos. <laughs> that was great. Um, so I, I do have a question, though. You, you mentioned that it, it kind of took off, right? And you obviously you, know, you have a lot of contributors. And you've built a real community, and it's, it's, it's you know, important. It has solved problems for many entities, right? But w- to what do you attribute that, that, kind, that rise um, early on? Is it, is it the nature of the problem that it solves? Or, you know, is there anything special? That, do you feel like you captured something with the community?
0: I think... It goes back to my own history, even prior to that, of of working in open source communities. Like I had been around the start of multiple projects and communities, uh, mostly in the Python ecosystem. Uh, I was an early adopter of Zope, which was an application server. Which mostly i don't know if it's how alive it is and then also the Plone content management system
1: Plone. i and, remember Plone. Uh,
0: i was a long time clone contributor wow um, okay
1: well, i bet we know we know some of the same people
0: Funny. no doubt no doubt and so but seeing how those projects started like you know there's this great uh youtube video on like starting a movement and it, it's not about the first person it's about your first follower and the first mm-hmm. person that's contributing and making it easy for people to contribute and focusing on documentation, creating an inclusive and open community. Like those are key aspects of things that, you know, I, I see I see a lot of enterprises doing open source. I don't see all of them necessarily doing it well, and that's probably because they don't have that DNA. Um, and I, I and there are great resources now, like there's like a whole OSPO community around doing this stuff well, uh, but it still takes like, uh, it's, it still helps to have experience. So even though we hit a lot of use cases that people had, I think mi- being welcoming and inviting contribution um, is really what helped us grow as a project.
1: I love. I, I appreciate that you answered it in exactly the way that I hoped you would, <laughs> highlighting especially non-code contributions, things like documentation and, and, and the other things that are equally important. Because again, if all you have is code, you can't really build a community.
0: Correct. We have maintainers that are, who made their bones solely on the basis of documentation contribution. Yeah. Like, yeah there was a project called Pyramid, and I, one of the things I loved about it, uh, it's, it's still used today, is that they treated any undocumented feature as a bug. Uh,
1: that I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of a good way to do things, I think. Uh, you know, I, I, I often say, like, if you don't really understand a thing until you can document it. So if it hasn't been documented, does anybody really understand it? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really important to remind people. I think, I don't know, I, I feel like the open, do you, do you feel like the open source community kind of ebbs and flows in their appreciation of non-code contributions? I feel like, I had this conversation actually with somebody recently, that they feel like sometimes they see a little bit of a retreat in the progress being made um, acknowledging certain types of, of contribution.
0: I feel like it really depends more on the specific community. Sure, okay, and, fair. Like, is the biggest thing. And then the ebb and flow potentially. Like the engagement, uh, or the the leadership, potentially turnover, uh, or the 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 understanding of where it is today, but uh, versus where you know in target state. Uh, but I, I primarily attribute it to the, the type of community and the culture of that community. Yeah. Um. Because that defining those values is what endures and creates that acceptance of and the, the desire for those types of contributions.
1: Yeah. I also you know I find. Um again, as using documentation as an example, I find writing good documentation to be far more difficult than writing good code.
0: I, I agree. <laughs> so
1: people, like, I don't know, I think most people now realize this, but, or especially if you've been around long enough to have seen good documentation. But yeah, it's, it's, such, a, it's such an important piece of the puzzle there.
0: Yeah, I think you know, way back when, I think um, Stripe, when they were first coming on board or coming out, um, it's like 2010, 2011, um, they the I think one of the keys to their success was that everyone thought they had the and it was amazing developer documentation.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, again, how do you are you gonna onboard users and work contributors without the docs? So I wanted to pivot just a little bit um, and find out what else you're excited about aside from the work that you're doing on, on Cloud Custodian. You know, there, again, there's so much going on, and you've been around open source a long time. You've seen you've seen things. <laughs> what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to?
0: Well. I mean, I could talk about what I'm trepidatious about, maybe. Oh, that
1: could be even more interesting.
0: Uh, I'm a little bit trepidatious about the nature of open source for projects that don't exist within a foundation. Um, Okay. We've recently seen changes on a lot of licenses to uh, BSL derivatives, effectively restricting field of endeavor and outside of the OSI definition of open source. Um, we've seen that across dozens of companies. And so that creates a real open question on, you know, is it actually open source? and and what is what is it going to take to create sustainable open source in the future? And so that's something that you know definitely definitely uh, is something that I think about a lot, like in trying to ensure that the next twenty years that the, that band of hippies is is still succeeding. Yeah. Um, Gotta love the hippies. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, and it's a challenge because, uh, you know, there are lots of organizations that will potentially contribute, and there are lots of organizations that will potentially not. And uh, how do we make it sustainable in a way that the project and the community can succeed independently of the existence of any right. one company?
1: I, you know I have this kind of, it's I love that you brought this up oh, God I could talk about this for hours but I know you have other things to do but um, I wonder if you notice a similar phenomenon I, I I feel like I talk about this with my friends who have been in again in the open source world for a very long time and maybe now that open source is ubiquitous is as you say the way software is made um, it's it's everywhere it I feel like the, f- the more progress we make, the more distance there is between our current position and the origins of open source and its ideology. And I wonder how much that impacts things. Like people coming into open source through their work or, or, or what have you, they don't necessarily see it in the same way that people who've been around for maybe the past 20 years do. And, and I wonder how much that impacts the evolution of these licenses and the way that you know, again, we've been around for for many controversies, right? Uh, we could talk about lots of databases and other and other things that were that have changed licenses, but um, I wonder what you know what your thoughts are.
0: Yeah, I, it's a it's a great question. I I I think there maybe you know we everything has to evolve. I think there's maybe some part missing of people understanding why open source was. So important in the first place, and it was really fundamentally about user rights. Right. Um, the rights of someone who's, who receives software to be able to do stuff with it. I mean, we go back to the printer lab at, at MIT, um, which is the origin for the FSF and some of, of, of Solomon's work uh, there, and it was really about trying to ensure that users who had software were able to freely modify it to meet their needs. Um, and I think there's still some of that ethos, but maybe there's less, less strong boundaries around what that means. And in terms of ensuring it for the future, there is going to have to be some degree of evolution. Um, I you know, it's not something it, it, I always found it funny when I was doing comp side that we never really covered the, the art of software engineering, like as from a perspective of, you know, um, at least at that time, when I went to school, uh, as as sort of a practice, uh, it was very much here's algorithms, here's right. you know, operating right. systems, um, and I I wonder if uh, potentially there are classes today. Though uh, I haven't been to university in a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's been a minute, um, and where some of that ethos is there. But I think you know we all have to adjust to the times. That the, I mean, like I, I looking around at other trends that are happening right now, you have got a bunch of a focus on supply chain and. And figuring out how to manage that well in open source communities, and then flip side, we've got you know the rise of LLMs and generative models. Like, what what does copyright and license mm-hmm. mean? And something gets laundered through an LM, it's a little bit unclear. That is
1: the question? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, I don't know that we can come up with any answers to these, but I appreciate you raising the questions. That's half the battle.
0: G I Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm so transparent. Uh, well, I, I, I appreciate, you, again, you taking time out. And, and thank you so much for sharing all this and, and giving us uh, many things to think about.
0: Thank you, Captain, for having me on. Yeah,
1: it's been delightful. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com podcast and at Open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source.